Hey everybody, it's Destry and Katie and we are the Practical Idealists and today we're going to be talking about Beauty and the Beast, The Enchanted Christmas. Oh, so terrifying. <laughs> so what is your history with this movie? Well, I remember receiving it as a gift on VHS when it first came out from a family friend who gave my sister and I something. I got that one. I don't remember what my sister got, but I'm sure it was equally bad. <laughs> I watched it 10,000 times, so... Why? It was there, and I would watch things on repeat as a kid. Does it put you in the Christmas spirit? Oh, no. I would not watch it during Christmas. <laughs> but isn't it, in fact, a Christmas movie? Technically. But where's the fun in watching it during Christmas? When else would you watch it? Whenever you want to hear the songs and feel the Christmas spirit. That you don't feel. Exactly. <laughs> That's convoluted. Almost as convoluted as the Tim Curry Pianos villain plan. I don't even want to know who he owed in order to do that. <laughs> and excuse me, organ. Major difference. Piano organ, major difference. I should know. I'm a music person. Anyway, my history with it is that my parents subscribe to the, well, if Disney made it, it must be good. And therefore, Destry's gonna like it ideology. So I have pretty much from the beginning, like the first Disney sequel, up until I would say like the mid 2000s when I was, you know, a middle schooler, every single Disney sequel on VHS. Yeah. But as far as this one was concerned, I had this one and I had the failed TV pilot, hmm. the, the Bell's Magical World or whatever. So I would always try to watch this during the holidays because what other time would you watch it? And I almost never got around to it. And if I did, it would be like on in the background and I'd be doing something completely different, not paying attention. So I don't have it memorized as well as you do. Like, I have a lot of the Disney movies memorized. But I do remember watching it enough. But then again, when you're a kid and it's Christmas time and you only have, like, four or five Christmas movies... You watch of, what you're given? Yeah, pretty much. But as far as this one is concerned, it has some problems. Would you agree? I saw no problems whatsoever. <laughs> Just staying completely ambivalent. I don't know what you're talking about. It wasn't the fact that the animation was terrible or the singing was horrific or the music was confusing. It was brilliant. Damn it. I did want to point one thing out, though. I was looking at the IMDb, and I enjoyed looking at the additional voices section just to see who's in there. And just now, looking through it, I have seen five... Five Broadway, like, award-winning people who was in the chorus of this movie. Oh, like who? We have Victoria Clark, who's in Light in the Piazza, playing the mom character. We have Judy Kay, who uh, was Emma Goldman in Ragtime, among others. Uh, Rebecca Luker is in there. She uh, originated Lily in The Secret Garden. <laughs> we have Howard fucking McGillen, the longest-running Broadway fan of the opera, also the voice of um, Derek and Swan Princess. So, yeah, I mean, they had a uh, stellar supporting scene chorus there. That actually alludes to a point that I've been wanting to make for a while. 90s Disney was very laser-focused on 
the Broadway scene. Which I think is weird because all of their animation departments were either in different parts of the world. They're all shut down now, by the way. Disney Toon Studios or Disney Television Studios that made this and all of the sequels is now no more. Like, they shut every single one of those That's down. probably a good thing. I think the last movie that they released and the last series of movies that they worked on was that Tinkerbell series. But I just think it's funny that back in the 90s, even though New York is miles and miles and miles away from California where all the animation was getting done, they still were able to bring in these big New York people. They seem to realize the importance of having a good sound even though their music was shit. I did notice that a lot of these people seem to have been in the Hunchback of Notre Dame cast as well. I mean it's work. If you can get consistent work somewhere even if it's not in your living state then you kind of go where the jobs are. But it's just a weird contrast from then to now where we have fucking Ariana Grande and John Legend singing Beauty and the Beast versus People Bryson and random female singer number five. Because that's what we had in this one. We had People Bryson and Roberta Flack. I don't know who that is. The only song that I know from her, and I feel bad for this because obviously she's a big deal to some people, is that uh, Killing Me Softly with his song. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is kind of weird that they would bother to make pop versions of these songs and then not bother to get anyone to actually sing them. The 90s was a different time for celebrity, so I I guess that that's fair. And now we get Demi Lovato. I also want to draw attention to the fact that both Angela Lansbury and Bernadette Peters, what other animated movie were they in? Anastasia. Very true. And Bernadette Peters was also doing a French accent. That is kind of weird. I guess she just had like a, a movie contract with them. She was not contracted to Disney. She was just contracting herself independently to these movies. But that's why I find kind of weird though is... Different studios. Yeah, but the same time. Yeah. I wonder how that ended up working out. Because I thought of that while we were watching it. I was like, wait, this feels familiar. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. That's a really good question, actually. That might be worth looking into. Mm -hmm. One more, Mm -hmm. just a little tidbit that I thought of last night. Burned Up Peters and Tim Curry had also worked together in the past. They both played um, Rooster and Lily St. Regis in the, what was it, the 80-something? Yeah, 82, Annie. I just wanted to throw that out there, too. And yet they never have a scene together. And they never sing together. Alrighty, so let's see here. Well, the way it begins is already a bad sign. It just, yeah. There's no pomp and circumstance. It literally just starts. And the liveliness of the animation's okay. The basic animation for it is fine. But when you get any kind of close-ups of any of their faces, that's when it starts to get a little bit, like, Uncanny Valley-ish. And I had questions about the method in which they animated the organ. That felt more CG to me. It was, yeah. Wouldn't that have been, like, a fairly new technology? The first movie that they used CG on was The Great Mouse Detective. But not to that degree. No, they used it for the clock scene. I mean, Toy Story had already come out at that point. That's weird to me. That doesn't feel right. Yep, 1996 was Toy Story. Or 95. I seem to remember there being something, though, that they had used, like, a a new technology to animate it. I mean, it's possible. I mean, that is a fully 3D CGI character in a 2D traditionally animated movie. So, I mean, maybe the process of getting them to meld together 
was a little bit different because, you know, with previous Disney animated movies, it was mostly, like, backgrounds that they right. would do. I mean, like I said, Toy Story had already come out about a year or two prior to that, but that doesn't mean that that technology was as readily available to the animators of this one. Because a lot of the animation, and I'm not sure about at this particular point, but I had to do a, a research paper for high school, and I did it on the Disney Company. By the way, and this is a plug for something that we're not getting paid for, I wish I was. If you ever see the book Disney War, you should definitely get it and read it. James B. Stewart. It basically details Michael Eisner's tenure as the CEO, COO, president, you know, his his dominion over the Disney company from about 1984 to about 2004-ish, 2004, 2006. The description on Amazon, the dramatic inside story of the downfall of Michael Eisner, Disney chairman and CEO, and the scandals that drove America's best-known entertainment company to civil war. See, we all got to enjoy their wonderful movies during the 90s, and they got to enjoy backstabbing each other to the nth degree so badly that none of them will even look at each other. Like, the video that surfaced of Hillary on one side of the bench and Trump on one side of the bench at George Bush's funeral, that's what everybody who worked for the Disney company from 1992 until 2002 feel about each other. That's really sad, though, that it was that <laughs> bad. But in that book, they talk a little bit about the, the Disney television studio stuff. And a lot yeah. of the animation was outsourced to different countries. So the fact that we were making Toy Story in California doesn't always translate to the fact that whoever did the actual animation animation for this one had that technology available to them in whatever country or wherever they were during this time. But ultimately, the movement is okay. There's a couple of scenes where you're like, you could have made this so much easier for yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, everybody has faces now. Everyone's a real person. All of the dishware. Ornaments. The ornaments, yeah. All have either faces or they're alive. And I think very particular things were alive in the original. I think the idea was that every object in the castle becomes enchanted not just the people, that way shit can actually get done. Yeah, that's also true. Because, I mean, a, a teapot can't run an entire kitchen and house as the housekeeper if she's a teapot. Mm -hmm. But if everything is sentient, she can order them to do things. Or if everything is animated. It's not a one-for-one a -one comparison. Like, not everything yeah. has a soul, a life, a, a human body attached to it. But in this one, everything has a face. Everything's sentient, everything moves, everything could possibly not exist anymore. Which makes the, the scene in the original where they go into his little wing of the castle and he has all that destroyed furniture uh -huh. that even more terrifying. terrifying. <laughs> He's just surrounded by corpses. Right. I don't think that that was their intention. I think that they were literally just going off of what the original had established. But not the happiest little moment, I would say. So... What I thought was funny is that it begins with, let's tell the story of the thing that we did last year. I don't this. remember anything I did last year. I just thought it was really funny that Miss Potts is like, you know what, excuse you, but I'm going to have to sit here and tell your dumbasses exactly what happened because I'm the only reliable person in this castle. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> the exposition goes south from there. They shoehorn this one into being like right after she is saved by him from the wolves. 
but then later on in the in the movie she gets saved by him again could they have found a way maybe to to maybe reorder some events here i have never been a huge fan of bell just because i don't like the character that much but this movie solidifies my hatred of her to be fair this isn't technically the real bell this is a spin-off it enhances every aspect of her that I hate, though. Yeah, it does, though. So I support this being the real Belle because it <laughs> confirms that I'm right. They give the audience, like, a recap of why they're supposed to give a shit. And that's never a good sign in the first five minutes of your movie that, You're oh, yeah. assuming that no one saw the original? Or that no one cared enough to remember what the original was about. So that was a little bit odd. The biggest issue with the animation that I have is that they make it very cartoony. Like, there's a lot of slapstick in this. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a whole bunch of characters falling and tripping and running into things. And, I mean, especially with the piccolo. Well, it was played by Pee Wee Herman, so. Which you did not know. I didn't know that, and it disturbed me. <laughs> and then there's just, like, juvenile humor where, like, she walks out the door and the beast is walking across the ice because, of course, he's just a dumbass. And then he, like, falls. He, like, gets surprised and falls. And he's like, I fell on my... Never mind. And I'm like, okay. Not something I would have heard in the original movie. And the racist axe. Yeah, yeah. The Jewish axe. Shmuel from uh, <laughs> last, last five, five years. years. Played by, I think, Jeff Bennett. Because, of course, a white guy has to do every single off-color voice in the history of humanity. Plus, I mean, Jeff Bennett was the bitch of the Disney sequel canon. And weirdly enough, everyone came back. Yeah. With the exception of Chip. They had to replace the original guy. Oh, there was a... Oh. Yeah, there was a different one because his voice had changed. Oh, okay. I could have swore it was Haley Joel Osment the entire way, but that was something that I didn't realize. He just fits it so perfectly. <clears throat> like, I didn't notice anything off about it, honestly. It surprised me that they managed to rope everyone back in. Especially uh, Robbie Benson. Yeah, I, I don't know how they, they managed any of that. And the fact that they all changed their voices for it upset me a little bit. Like, what's the point in getting the same people back if they're going to do different voices? Mm -hmm. Although, I will say that because the Beast spends more time on screen, he brought some more dimension to how he uses his voice in each of the scenes. So I did appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But, oh boy, Paige O'Hara. Ooh, what happened? I didn't even realize that she reprised her role until you told me that because I remembered the singing and I remembered how bad it was. <laughs> God rest her soul and I love her very much. But it reminds me of when Michelle Nicastro took over for singing for Odette. Ooh, yeah. And it was like... Liz Calloway, you are not. Right. I really want to know what happened. and She was actually not hitting notes at some point. Yeah. Like, she was flat a lot of the time. So I think we have to blame the music director a lot for that, too. Yeah. That they exactly. let this performance get kept. What it sounded like to me, if anybody has seen any of the special features for The Little Mermaid, they would know that, especially, especially for the major Disney canon at this point in the 90s, they were directing the fuck out of them like micro directing they, right there is a a filmed sequence that you can find on a lot of the little mermaid dvds of like her in the recording studio not even singing but like literally being coached through the song part of your world yeah uh-huh coached where to breathe coached how to say certain words 
coach how long to hold them. It was micromanaging to the nth degree. So the fact that they didn't care enough is striking. But the point I'm trying to make here is number one, they obviously just slap dash the music together. Like they did not have enough studio time to really dig into these songs. So they're just like, okay, you got three takes and we're going to take the best parts of each take and throw it in the movie. But number two is that Paige O'Hara was obviously used to having that extra time. And the fact that she didn't receive it, I think, came out in her performance. Because the lines are fine, but in the singing, I think that she got frustrated. And that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like she honestly just got frustrated with it and was just bitter the entire time. Like, and we're done with this. <laughs> like, the only time that she sounds even remotely interested in the song is when she's singing with Bernadette at the, the reprise. Yeah, the two of them singing together wasn't horrible. But every other song that she was a part of, I'm like, wow, you just, you were mad at somebody that day. I've never really been a big fan of Paige O'Hara personally, but even I know that she can sing better than what was presented in this movie. Well, I mean, I, I've met her once, so she came to a Disney convention when we used to have those around here because, of course, everything that I like dies. But <laughs> That's right. <it> <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry fucking Christmas. But um, she did come to a Disney convention that we had here in the area, and um, I never really got a read on her. I didn't get, like, a bad vibe from her, and she didn't treat anybody poorly or anything, and she was signing autographs for free. If you had more than one item, they would ask for like a $10 donation or something because she had like a charity that she was promoting at this point. I forget what it was. This is when I was still in high school. Yeah, about, about 10 years ago. I have a, a signed VHS copy of Beating the Beast because of, of course I do. I just never really got like a good read on her. I wasn't sure if she was being nice because she was making an appearance. Probably. Or if she was being nice because that's just kind of how she is. Like there's a vast difference in my feelings toward Jodie Benson versus her. Like, I feel like Jodie Benson actually enjoys being, like, a at Disney conventions princess. and stuff like that. And I don't think that Paige is really... Like, I think that she's very aware that her voice degraded to an extent that she wasn't even prepared for. Well, and also looking at the rest of her work, I think it's also pretty clear that she had much higher aspirations. And it just didn't happen. So she's like, well, I guess this is what I'm doing now. Yeah. I mean... I don't want to badmouth someone that we, we have no negative information about her, so. When you look at a person's body of work and you see that they're failing at what they obviously want to do, you have to make certain judgments. Mm -hmm. I was disturbed by the lack of quality from the music and performance standards. And you have great people. You have Tim fucking Curry. God help him. He did what he could. <laughs> he gave it what he had to give it, but you could tell they were just not letting him do what he wanted to do. I mean, his character was sequestered to a wall of the castle, so... <laughs> Except for that really weird moment where they actualize him in human form. And I know you're not going to get this reference, but I'm going I'm to say it anyway for the animation people out there. He looks like Mock from Rock and Roll. I vaguely I remember what you're talking about. It's the same people who did The Devil and Daniel Mouse. Okay. They're, they're a Canadian studio. Please tell us on our Twitter, at Idealist underscore the... Shameless plug. <laughs> Shameless plug. If you agree with me, because he really does. Anyway, I'm always glad when Tim Curry's here. Yeah, he adds a certain level of quality to whatever he does, even if it's garbage. 
But what I will say is that he has like one of the most convoluted villain motivations that I've seen in a while. He wants the beast to be miserable so that he can play his version of depressing music. So that he is needed by the beast. Right. For the first time, given respect. Like, it makes sense, but it's like, wow. Again, further showing how little time and care and thought was put into the entirety of this movie. Because it didn't have to be this bad. Like, it was never going to be good. There were interesting things they could have done. I think we should also talk about how Belle is now the Beast's life coach. Yeah. Belle is a lot of things. And Belle is a lot of things that I don't like. But Belle is not a fucking life coach. And it's kind of insulting for you to put her in that role. Because in the original... She kind of lived by example. The fact that she was happy and that she found herself happy where she was, doing what she needed to do, and that she never gave up, even though she was in an impossible situation, that's what drew the beast in. The fact that she would find those moments of happiness. It wasn't, I'm happy doing this. That means that you also have to be happy doing this. Mm -hmm. Which is what she did throughout the entirety of this movie. And if you're not happy doing this, that means you're evil. There's two places that that's demonstrated pretty well. Number one is in the opening fucking scene where they're ice skating and she's like come on ice skate with me you can do it i'll show you like it's like all of this life coach like let me realign your chakra shit and then they have like a wipeout and then he sees his snow beast instead of his snow angel and then tears it up and runs away and she's like why is he always so grumpy and i'm like really seriously Bell is a lot of things. Life coach is not fucking one of them. And there's a reason why, because she's awful at it. She keeps actively trying to cheer him up mm-hmm. and draw him in, which she never did in the original. She was just kind of she, existing. She was just living and trying to make herself not miserable. She was not going out of her way. She was just like, oh, I see you there. Would you like to join me occasionally? Mm-hmm. Which is the way it should be, not you must do these things. In order to be happy. There was never any like, pressure put on it. As opposed to in this movie where it was constant pressure put on. Like, I felt like she knew that she was dooming everyone to death. Which is a a big problem with the live-action remake. She knows from the start that if she doesn't fall in love with them, then... They're all screwed. Yeah. And how does that help you fall in love with somebody? Like, well, I guess I better find something I like. Yeah, that's that's not how that works. I also hate how everybody's laser-focused on the Belle and Beast romance. Like, that was a huge part of the original, and I understand that. But this one, it's just ridiculous. There's nothing else in the world. Like, they have no other conversation besides how are we going to make Christmas happen and how are we going to get them together? Like, those are the only two conversations that anyone ever has ever. And at least there was some variety. In the original. Yeah. So can we talk about how terrible those songs are? Like, not even from a music standpoint, but the lyrics are just atrocious and they really 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 tried to get that as long as there's christmas song which to be fair i do remember that one yeah it sticks in your head that is one that as soon as they started singing it i'm like well of course i know this i don't know why i know this i don't want to know this but i still do but every other song was either shoehorned in at like the most inopportune moment or it was just obnoxious like especially the bell's making the book montage song. Oh, yeah. Like, that was the worst offender. 
in my personal opinion. I read him stories. <laughs> that was her worst singing moment, too. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, that's a really difficult melodic line. You can't make that pretty. But I think that her less than give a shit made it worse. Oh, yeah. You could just tell that she was just pumping this one out. <laughs> so the music was written, and I believe also the lyrics, but let me confirm that. Uh, Rachel Portman. I don't know who that is. She has composed music, apparently no lyrics, for a lot of stuff. Most of it is kind of artsy, like Emma, the 1996 with Gwyneth Paltrow, Chocolat, <laughs> Cider House Rules. So maybe she was the background music person. Maybe she wasn't no, the song writer. She, I remembered seeing her name there as the lyrics too. Huh. So I think maybe that was the problem. That she she's a musician and not so much a, a writer. Hey, when you only have a very limited budget, you get who you get and you use them as best you can. I can only imagine what the finder's fee for Paige and Robbie Benson Ooh. were. <laughs> Even then, it must have been exorbitant. But I think one of my least favorite songs is the one towards the end where they make that dungeon the happiest dungeon that you ever did see. And it's the When We Do Things Together song with Lumiere and Cogsworth. Kind only... above the rest. Yeah, there you go. Not only is no one singing, but no one is caring. And Belle, like, semi-raps there for a minute. Yeah. And apparently now the Beast is the Grinch. Well, he always has been at heart. <laughs> His dedication to no Christmas is... Uh, impressive. Impressive, yes. <laughs> and now, of course, the entire opening sequence of the original movie happened during Christmas, too. And mm. the reason he was a little bitch to the Enchantress is because she wasn't giving him presents. And she arrived at an inopportune time. During his grumpy pants time. During his grumpy pants present opening time. But I mean, when you think about it, it really is the palace servant's fault for giving him a shitty gift. When you really get down to the, the nitty gritty of the situation. So it's kind of their own fault. And Lumiere is very verbose, so <laughs> he needed to shut the hell up and give him the crap present. Or be doomed to be eaten by the fucking bright little toaster furnace. And be a sexy, sexy uh, candelabra. The biggest man whore in animated history. <laughs> man, he, wow, he's such a man whore that he even hits on things that don't move. He hits on inanimate objects. Yeah, he does. So not so, even they are aware of what's animate and inanimate, too. Yeah. That also jumped out at me. Mm -hmm. So not even the servants know who is another servant and not. That must have been an interesting first conversation when they all got transformed. So who are you? Right. <laughs> well, I'm Lumiere, so therefore... He's lit. And now I'm Cogsworth, so therefore I'm a clock. He's the butler. He keeps time. It makes sense. And Fifi is Froofy, so she's obviously a feather duster. Or because she's a maid. That's anti-feminist. <laughs> Propaganda, Katie. Could you be more of a woman hater? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only in my free time. Watch me. <laughs> Belle has some boundary issues. Belle has always had boundary issues. I think it's funny that once he saves her from the ice lake, she's like, you'll never be anything but a monster. I just wanted to make you happy, is what she says. By not listening to him and not abiding by his wishes. Not listening to anything that matters to him, not asking him why he's upset over something. Like, seriously, why do you hate Christmas? Because that was the day that I got transformed. Right? Fair enough. Well, you would also think that someone in the, the castle would have bothered would... to share that information. Right, exactly. Like, maybe he doesn't want to commemorate that moment. Mm -hmm. Like, you need to stop being such a pushy little bitch, Belle. Seriously, though. 
I don't know why I put this. <laughs> I have it written down here that why is Forte such a bitch? No context. You're welcome. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's a fair question. Because other than just, I want all of the attention to myself, he really has no reason to be as mean as he is. And I love how so jaded Belle is that she doesn't even flinch when the Tim Curry organ introduces himself to her. Yeah, she's just like, whatever, bitch, I've been through this. <laughs> like, I almost got eaten by wolves the other day. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious because she's just, oh, hi, it's nice to meet you. And I'm like, this is like a 70-foot organ. Not at all impressed. <laughs> that is talking not, to you. Not bothered. Whatever. And then she so easily forgets the wolf incident. Like, he <laughs> convinces her to go out and get a Christmas tree, which that was the longest sleigh ride yeah. ever. I know that it gets dark early during the winter, but they leave at, I would say, around 2, 3 o'clock based on where the sun was at. And his ass goes and saves her at, like, 8, 9 o'clock in the evening. Based on where the sun was at in an animated movie, assuming that the sun moves in a <laughs> traditional way to a sequence of events. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> and also a lot of time has passed because they keep trying to, like, distract him from waiting for her. Mm -hmm. And you would think that he would get the damn message, but again, Beast is not only now the Grinch, but he's also an idiot. Like, what the hell happened? Paige O'Hara's voice degraded and his IQ degraded. So is, is there some kind of a, a trade-off going on here? Like, the more that Belle sings, the stupider he gets. Like, what's going on? I think that that's a fair assumption. <laughs> I would get more dumb if I had to listen to that singing all the time. Mm-hmm. And I love how Tim Curry feels as though he needs to spell out his plan for the audience multiple times. I think that he is assuming that the audience are a bunch of four- and five-year-olds, which they are. To be fair, yes. <laughs> but also he's talking to the poor little flute, and the poor little flute is dumb. And that's the other problem, is that Fife is just ineffective. It's supposed to be funny, but it's not really funny. He's just obnoxious a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because he's supposed to be enacting this creepy, evil organs plan. And he's like this bumbling idiot of a sidekick. <clears throat> so couldn't he have chosen anyone else? Apparently there are no other musicians, though. And who else would hang out with him? How does he handle that? I know you're stupid, I know you're ineffectual, but I still have to use you. Like, that seems like a thing that he would be like, you know what, get me someone else. Like, he would get the flute to turncoat someone else. But no one else would buy it because the flute's too stupid and he's too much of an asshole. So no one would choose to spend time with him because they're already depressed enough without him making them more depressed. So what you're saying is they have a abusive domestic relationship. Exactly. <laughs> I had a big question here. Can the utensils die of natural causes? Like, there's a point where Chip goes under the water and stays underwater for a very long time. And I know that in animation, being underwater for a long time kind of doesn't really mean anything unless it's, like, specifically supposed to be, uh-oh, they're going to drown. You know, like, they're going over a waterfall or something. But just putting some logic back into it, even though they're alive and they have mouths and stuff, can they still die, or are, are they literally just inanimate objects? Well, my personal philosophy, because of course I, I have a personal philosophy on this, is that as long as everything that was affected by the curse is on the castle grounds, they're safe from dying, just period. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they leave the grounds, they're unsafe, which is kind of why I think that the Beast is so firm on no one leaving the castle grounds. Mm. Because... If you're going to leave, then you're going to die. 
And, of course, we learn after the fact that he bears personal responsibility for them. And he has learned to bear personal responsibility for all of his people who were affected by the curse. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't need one more thing to make him feel guilty. That's what I believe, that the curse covers that. That you cannot die of natural or unnatural causes while you are under the place that has been cursed. So a quick question about the original. Because... I think that you've thought about it more than I have. Probably. To be fair, I'm not a big fan of Duty and the Beast as a story, as a Disney movie. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan. So in your opinion, I don't know why I thought of this, in the original, when she trades being a prisoner in the castle for her father, besides the fact that she's, you know, sacrificing her life for his, like, get that transaction, why does the Beast want someone there anyway i think he's just lonely right but he's gonna lock him up well i mean from the other stories that i've read he imprisons the father because he steals from him so when she comes to rescue her father he sees her and he's like well you're my last chance here's the deal i have to have a prisoner so you're gonna trade your life for his and that's why he imprisons her but do you feel like that's how it is in the in the? Disney I think movie? that that's probably the way it is. This guy trespasses, which obviously he has issues with, and he is in his house unannounced, and he's you know breaking his confidence. So he's like, "Fuck you! You're gonna be in the dungeon, and you're gonna die." And then this pretty girl comes in. He's like, "Well, I have maybe two years left. She's obviously my last chance. I have to at least try to make this work." Mm-hmm. Or in the original French one, which this one is based off of, I think it's actually. The father, after stealing from him, returns to the home where Belle has yes. also has two sisters. And he's like, so I told him that for my freedom, I would send him one of my daughters. Yeah. The two older sisters are like, I will never do it. And the little girl, Belle, is like, well, I love you, so I'll do it so that you won't get killed. <laughs> if we know anything about the Grimm's fairy tale, no matter if they're stepsisters or just sisters... You want to get away from them as quick as possible. Siblings are bad. Yeah. Then we have Deus Ex Beast with the damn Frozen Lake save. It's funny to me that they decided to place this after the wolf attack. Like, you should know better than to walk out onto a Frozen Lake and have to get saved again. That's just repetitive to me. But how dumb is this bitch? Well, obviously she's not smart. (laughs) Chip's like, we should just do it. And she's like, sure, why not? I didn't just almost die less than a week ago, but okay. You made a point the other night when we were watching it about how he's like, is it more important for Christmas to happen or for you to keep your word? And what did you say, Katie? I said, for you to keep your word. And why is that? Because we're grown-ass adults and Christmas is an arbitrary holiday (laughs) that may or may not be celebrated by everyone and probably wasn't celebrated during the time that this was created, especially the fact that the Christmas tree only came into popularity during the reign of Queen Victoria because Albert was German and Germans created the Christmas tree. I mean, Yule, the holiday celebrated by pagans, often involved decorating a tree in hopes of gaining the respects of a tree spirit, but that also still came from Germanic pagan roots or Celtic, but this is France. And then he locks her in the basement dungeon Mm -hmm. not even the tower dungeon and he doesn't let her dry off so hypothermia much yes but i guess all the singing and dancing with the inanimate objects kind of warmed her ass up i guess (laughs) there you go i thought it was a nice touch that when he finally reads the book that she wrote for him in less than a day 
Because if Magic. she can read a book in less than a day, she can write one. They made it so that it was written in French. Mm-hmm. Like, they did not have to do that. The one person who cared. Right. I want to know what intern's job it was to make all of those cells. Because mm-hmm. someone had to write that. They're like, at least I can put this on my resume. Oh, and then when the castle starts coming apart because Forte's playing the, the loud music and trying to destroy everybody. Remember, kids, don't play your music too loud or you'll bring down the house. Yep. Also a lesson we learned in Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> you can't celebrate Christmas if you're dead. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there's like a vague gap between the Beast and Belle, and I call shenanigans, uh. <laughs> because I know that this is earlier in the plot, but he literally goes on the roof to fight Gaston along the spires, hundreds of feet up in the air, and yet you can't hop along Cassidy over a fucking gap. Obviously. So I thought that was hilarious. I also thought it was a good touch that they established that the organ music can manifest in the real <clears throat> world. Uh So that when he attacks them with it at the end, it's not just like, wow, that came out of fucking nowhere. And to be fair, I think that that's a really interesting kind of concept. Because give him some kind of power since he is literally bolted to the wall. And also, I like the fact that he's able to translate his music onto paper. Mm -hmm. Because he's a composer, so it makes sense. But honestly, fucking demon piano. Oh, yeah. What I feel like happened is that that castle was severely possessed. Like, not even just with the curse that happened. It was already... It was already possessed. I and I think that. that when... Because, again, he's fused to the wall. Uh-huh. He's fe- He's the only object that we've seen that can't walk around. That's true. Every like, other even object, the wardrobe and everything wasn't bolted to the wall. Every other object we've ever seen in any of the movies is always mobile. Well, he is, is the most immobile object that we've seen. And he's connected, physically connected, to the castle. Is it common practice, though, to bolt? Yes. But, I mean, still, just... Still, it's, it's a little bit disturbing that something sentient was turned into something that was bolted to the wall. I mean, that's my headcanon about it. The castle was already possessed, but now, because he's a part of the castle now that he is also possessed. I mean, I think that he was also always evil. At least always a dick. Yeah. I think that that's kind of interesting to think about. Again, potential for something, a more interesting story here. Mm Mm-hmm. But of course, they're not going to talk about demon possession in Beating the Beast, the Enchanted Christmas. God damn it. Even though ghosts and Christmas are long tied together. The climax is really clunky, even though it was foreshadowed, so... And then I also like how Beast just straight up killed a guy. Uh Uh-huh. Even though he went out of his way to avoid killing people in the original. I haven't seen Beat and the Beast in a while, but Gaston falls, right? Yeah. He's He's trying to pull him back up. He definitely does fall. The Beast does not kill him. So he literally just rips this guy out of the fucking wall and just kills him. Well, because remember, in the original, he is waiting for Gaston to kill him. Yeah, exactly. So he was not attempting to kill him. Mm-hmm. And then Adam, now no longer the Beast, his cheap-ass Christmas present to uh, Belle. I also like that right after we transition back to present time. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. <laughs> Did you intend to say that? Sort of, kind of. Okay, I wasn't sure. <laughs> that he gives Chip a book, and he's like, 
will you read it to me? And Miss Potts is like, sure, even though I just spent the last hour and five minutes telling you all about a story that you should have already fucking known because you were there. sure, I'll read you the story book. Because <laughs> I'm a good mom. She must be the most beleaguered mom in the entire universe. And I thought it was funny that when they transition towards after the story is over, that Belle has a specific Christmas dress, mm-hmm. but the one that she wears for the previous Christmas is her Beauty and the Beast attire. I thought the that... gold dress. That's the only nice dress she had. Now that they're unenchanted, she can get dresses made for her. Well, I mean, obviously, because all of the sewing equipment was enchanted, so if she made a dress out of any of the thread, she'd be making a dress out of people. Yes, their veins. Is that what happened? Is that everybody's circulatory system became thread in the castle? Yes, so that next time a pretty girl came, they could be Christmas. (laughs) I also... Really want to know why they had that dress in her exact size. She's kind of hanging Obviously, out. one of his sisters slash mom looked just like her. Ew. See, I want to know what the beast backstory is that doesn't include the curse. Like, I want to know about his family life because obviously something went down. <laughs> and then after it's all said and done, they're all like, wow, what a great Christmas we had. And I'm like... As opposed to this one where you're not enchanted and having a party. Are you seriously telling me that... Your impending death. The evil organ trying to kill you was the best Christmas ever. They were all together. Sure. I thought it was ridiculous that they kept putting the motif of roses everywhere. (laughs) And it meant absolutely fucking nothing. He likes roses, Destry. (laughs) It was everywhere. And I'm like, what's the point of that? Like, I know that that's a major motif of the story in general, but that doesn't mean that you have to splash it over every single wall. Yes, it does. So, I mean, it really wasn't as bad as I remembered it being. Yes, it was. We were initially going to do a commentary, and I was persuaded not to do so, and I think that was probably for the best. There wasn't enough actually going on. And you'll have to let us know, guys, if you like this format of us watching something and taking notes. Usually, if we do, like, one of these discussions, it's usually on, on like, a newer movie. Like, I don't think we've done this type of thing on a movie that we've just kind of sat down and watched. Not yet, I don't think. It was an interesting experience watching it again after all these years, because this is not one of the ones that I have seen in a very long time like I went through like a Disney phase like towards the end of high school because I was just that much of a dork and I remember watching this just because I was trying to say that I had watched every Disney movie up to that point which I had to be fair at this point that's no longer true but that was the last time that I've seen this and even then I think that I was doing homework while I watched it (laughs) I couldn't believe that I still had those songs memorized (laughs) Especially with how bad they were. Especially with how bad they were. But, I mean, this is 97, right? So, I was four when it came out. And apparently four-year-old me really loved this movie. (laughs) More than she should have. I was four. I was stupid. I was the exact right audience for this. So, would you recommend this? No. (laughs) (laughs) Not even a little bit. (laughs) And why not? Because it's absolute garbage and should probably just be stricken from the general memory. Do you think it's worse than Belle's Magical World? Yes. Really? Yeah. Explain that one to me. I mean, the only thing that this one really has going for it is its cast. Mm, That's true. But the story is worse. Belle's Magical World was supposed to be like a 
preschool TV show. I know, but at least they're self-aware of what they are. This movie took itself too seriously. Oh, yes. This was the long-awaited midquel of one of the biggest movies that Disney ever made. It was fun watching it again, though. What I will say, though, is that I think that this has a case for existing more than a lot of the sequels do. That's fair. Because a lot of the sequels boil down to the same thing that happened in the first one happens to a new set of characters. Mm -hmm. It distinguishes itself enough, I think, from the other Disney sequels that at least it's not a repeat. Mm -hmm. They did something different. So if I have any positive words for this, it would be that they at least tried something different. They failed. They failed very hard. But it's unique enough that if you've never seen it before and you're just that damn curious, it's not going to be the worst hour and five minutes that you spend, especially if you have a kid. I wouldn't recommend this if you're our age. Even if you saw it way back in the day and you're like, wow, I'm still single and have no children. I should rewatch this. No, no, no. But if you are our age and have a child who has never seen it and it's Christmas time, then sure. Have fun watching Tim Curry. Yeah. This is definitely one of those where the adults in the room need not apply. They can check out for an hour or two. Yeah. So just for the fun of it, if you had to choose a animated Christmas movie that was your favorite, what would it be? Just overall? Just overall. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the classics. Give me Charlie Brown any day. I was never a big fan of Rudolph. It always kind of scared me. It's because you're weak. I am. (laughs) I was scared of everything as a kid. No, give me Charlie Brown Christmas any day. Now that one I haven't seen in forever. It's a good one. It's a classic for a reason. I haven't seen really any of the Charlie Brown ones in a while. I think the uh, the second Christmas one is up on Netflix. Not the original, but there's another one that they made. Well, all right, guys. We have a Twitter. Once again, it is idealist underscore the. Double plug. We have an Instagram, which is just the practical idealist, or our names, Destry and Katie. And this is our second Christmas holiday-themed episode here. And next week is Christmas. Which is weird to me. I feel like December has gone by really, really fast. Usually does. So, hope you're having a good holiday so far. We still have some things planned for our personal holiday. So, stay tuned. As always, thanks for listening. We will see you in the next one. Bye.